Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Hello and welcome back to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. This week, Mark Lohr, the former head of Walmart's e-commerce business, who's turned the retailer's once clunky website into a viable challenger to Amazon. Since leaving Walmart in January, Mark has gone back to his entrepreneurial roots, launching a venture capital firm with baseball legend Alex Rodriguez, buying a stake in the Minnesota Timberwolves basketball team, and in his most audacious project, trying to build a 5 million person city from scratch under a new form of communist capitalism. If that sounds like a lot, know that Lore has been juggling multiple side hustles since he was a teenager in New Jersey. Mark spoke to my colleague Matthew Boyle, our senior management and workplace reporter. Here's their conversation. So, Mark, welcome to Out of Office. It's, it's, it's great to have you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, Mark, I wanted to start off with um, usually my questions for you were around, you know, profit margins for e-commerce, but we're going to have a little different conversation today, uh, hopefully one a little bit more expansive. Um, I was hoping we could maybe start at, at, at the beginning. I mean, you were born in Staten Island and then you moved to, to Jersey, Lincroft, New Jersey. I'd love to know, I mean, what are some of your most sort of vivid memories of, of growing up in Jersey? Yeah, well, um, you know, in Staten Island for, uh, was very, uh, it's not a very diverse neighborhood that we grew up in. I'm uh, a you know, Catholic Italian, and, and that's basically, you had that in Irish Catholic, you know, in the, in the entire neighborhood. And for the first 10 years of my life, I didn't know anyone that wasn't sort of uh, Italian or Irish. Um, it was a very homogeneous sort of community. Um, you know, my parents had me when they were 20 and 19 years old and, and, uh, we lived very modest means there in, in, in Staten Island. And, uh, you know, it's just a very, uh, humble beginning, I guess you can yeah. say, you know, I, I, I can relate. I think of most of my friends were, yeah, just most of my friends were Irish and Italian growing up in, uh, in Westchester as well in the, in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, you have told us before, though, Mark, that your your parents sort of fought a lot. How did that impact you as a kid? And also, how did it influence sort of how you treat others as, as a boss? Oh, yeah, that's funny. I've never got asked that question, but it is uh, it definitely has influenced my uh, leadership style. So, yeah, I mean, I I did did witness that a lot, a lot of fighting and arguing and things growing up. And I was always the I was the oldest in the family. I have a younger brother and sister. I was sort of the peacemaker um, in trying to. Um, you know, get both sides to to a to yeah. common ground in a good place uh, and keep peace, and uh, you know, just developed I think you know uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, feel for people and reading people, and and that translated into you know having empathy, and and yeah. uh, and so I, I think I think I'm a little non-traditional when it comes to CEO leaders and things, and that I do lead with with sort of empathy. Uh, 
as a starting place. I mean, we're hearing a lot more about empathy these days, Mark, obviously, but most leaders in the technology space are known more for, let's say, their intensity. You know, Steve Jobs, famously volatile, Bill Gates throwing tantrums at Microsoft, and of course, Jeff Bezos, you know, sort of exploding at, at underlings who fail to meet his, his standards. I mean, you've, you're, you're kind of known more for being more sort of even keeled um, in, in your approach. But even you, I mean, do you ever fly off the handle at times? What, what sets you off? I never fly off the handle, no. Which maybe maybe it's a fault, you know. I mean, uh, I, I uh, can take a lot. I absorb a lot, you know. And uh, I always can see where, where people are coming from. And it sets you up. Sometimes you could be taken advantage of just, just because, you know, you, you know, you could sort of excuse any type of behavior uh, at some, at some, you know, to some extent. And so being able to, you know, as you get older, be able to balance that and know what, you know, when it's, it's, it's truly required, you know, to, to, to yeah. feel and show empathy and, and other times when it's, it's okay to, to make some, some hard decisions that need to be made but still being able to do it in a, in a kind way. So Mark, we often hear that people are sort of born entrepreneurs. I mean, your life kind of illustrates that when you were, when you were six, you were charging family members five cents to watch Casper the friendly ghost on a slide projector. And you were borrowing money from your parents to buy stocks as a teenager. You know, you sold your first company to tops, your second company to Amazon, and then your third to, uh, to Walmart, as we all know. Um, do you think though, can entrepreneurism be taught? And, and if so, how would you teach it? I mean, I've thought about this a lot. I don't think you can really teach it, but I think there are a lot of people out there that aren't entrepreneurs or didn't know they were entrepreneurs and they actually would make great entrepreneurs. So it, a lot of it is sort of the, the mindset, you know, the ability. A lot of it comes down to the ability to, to take risk and work hard and, and work hard and have conviction in the face of others telling you it's a bad idea or it's not going to work. So it's okay. that that sort of uh, tenacity, you know. But but it's, yeah. it's that combined with the risk taking. So um, you have to be willing to take risk and be able to move when you don't know what steps. You know, make the first step when you don't know what steps two, three, four, and five look like. There are a lot of okay. people that just need to know all the steps before they engage in step one, and and that's not yeah. how entrepreneurship works. And so you have to be that type of person that's willing to just jump. Uh, and, and have faith that it's going to work out if you uh, if you keep at it. And how do you identify that in others? Because as you said, some people might have it but not really know. So I'm sure you'd love to work alongside those types of, of people. Um, how do you identify it? Because you've obviously worked alongside several people um, in, in many various entities uh, throughout your career. You certainly have a cadre of people that you feel comfortable with. Um, what did you identify in those types of people that made you say, hey, these are people I want to stick with? Yeah, well, I think it's a little bit different whether you're sort of a, a pure founder and you're out on your own and you have to um, have have the vision, raise the capital and hire the people. And that's like different than, you know, hiring people that are entrepreneurial, you know, into a startup. Um, and it's kind of two different types of people. I don't think the, the people that you hire in necessarily need to be as, as much of a risk taker, but they do need to be comfortable with change and ambiguity. Um, yeah. So a lot of that, you know, in a startup, it's not like, okay, here's the plan and then we just stick to it. No, the plan, new information happens every day and you have to readjust the plan according to the new information. Some people are uncomfortable yeah. with that. Um, uh, you also have to be, um, you know, comfortable, uh, you know, being scrappy and, you know, not having a big organization and be able to roll up your sleeves and do things yourself. 
and obviously work hard. Um, I, uh, the spot, SPOTIC is an acronym I use for the types of people I think do well in startups. So they're uh, smart, passionate, optimistic. That's a key. Being, yeah. being positive because you have any sort of negative. There's plenty of things to be negative about a startup because a lot of things early on don't seem like they're working in most cases and then until they do work. And so you have to be yeah. optimistic to get through that tenacity, adaptability, and then kindness and empathy. Got it. So t tell me about some of those, uh, the early days at like at Quincy, for example, I mean, you, f you, you founded Quincy, which of course is known for diapers.com, uh, the customer facing site in 2005. And, and we had our first kid in 2006 and another in 2008. So we were huge customers of yours. I remember getting my diapers, uh, my diapers.com delivered to me at work um, uh, because we couldn't get it at our house in uh, our, our apartment in, uh, in Brooklyn. Um, I mean, Quincy was really known, though, for a keen understanding of, of what customers wanted, specifically parents. How did you and your team sort of figure out in those early days what sort of personal touches, what services would really resonate with, with customers? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was just, you know, in, in, intuition. Um, and, you know, I had uh, a newborn baby. Actually, at that time, I had two, two kids. Uh, and, and, you know, you go through as a parent, what every parent does, the, the frustrations of, of trying to get all the stuff that you need uh, for, for the babies and toddlers and things. And it's not a, it's not a great experience. And, uh, you know, these are commodity goods. And so it seemed only natural that if you can deliver them, you know, timely, fast, yeah. at good prices, that there'd be a really big market for it. The problem was you couldn't make money doing it. Um, and that was sort of the catch and why it had not been done uh, until diapers.com. But we viewed it as, you know, diapers were a loss leader for brick and mortar to drive traffic and parents into the stores to buy everything else. Well, on yeah. the internet, if you can drive people to the store to buy everything else, it's literally everything else, <laughs> not, not just the 100,000 products in a store. So actually, you could afford to lose more money. That was the, the, the high level thesis and it proved, proved out. Um, but you know, a lot of it was not, it wasn't, if you ask customers what they want, they often don't know until you show yeah. it to them. And so a little bit is just taking a leap and, uh, and, and then pivoting if, if need be. Yeah. How did you come up, like, but I remember though, you had like 37, 37 different types of boxes, right? Uh, was that at Quitsy or was that at, at, at Jet? I forget which one, but like- That was, one, a, that was at Quitsy, That was yeah. at Quitsy, right. So, how, you know, that's, it involves a lot of analysis, I imagine. And you've, you've always been a numbers guy for sure. But, um, you know, how did you think you sort of come up with something like that? Or how did you figure out, okay, this is really what's going to matter. This is one of the things that might move yeah, the Yeah, because yes, it's a commodity, to low margin business, and we wanted to have a competitive advantage. So how do you- you know, uh, you know, eke out a little margin here and there. And we're shipping these diapers in these big boxes, diapers and wipes and things. And yeah. you're paying UPS and FedEx more for empty space in the box and you're paying more for the corrugate if the box is bigger. And so yeah. we saw an opportunity to save considerable amount of money to get the optimal size box with as little air as possible and a little as corrugate as possible. And there was significant savings to do that, both in shipping and, and, and packaging. And so... Yeah. And so, yeah, so we really invested in the analytics to sort of um, build these algorithms to figure out, was, we called it boxum, how to, how to box a certain set of items in the smallest box possible, and then yeah. to have all those boxes available in the yeah. warehouse. A, a lesson that some, uh, some other e-commerce companies could still maybe uh, learn here. Um, Mark, you once told us that you were obsessed with Amazon's culture, but 
you certainly didn't adopt all of their practices at the companies you, you founded. What, what elements of, of their culture do you think worked or did you maybe want to incorporate and which ones did you really want to sort of avoid? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, you know, it didn't, the culture didn't really resonate with me uh, too much um, because of what you said before on sort of the softer, the softer side of things, empathy yeah. and kindness and skills like that were, were not, uh, were kind of looked down upon. Um, I think the, the the key, it really came to, it wasn't that people weren't necessarily kind or empathetic maybe in their day-to-day life, but I think in terms of the business culture, it was one that uh, felt like social cohesion got to the wrong answer. That if, if you basically treated people well and kind and empathetic in a group setting, that you'll lead to a suboptimal decision, um, which may be the case. Like if you look at it purely yeah. on that specific decision, but if you take a step back and think about the broader implications of the culture, the types of people and the talent you're able to recruit there, and you know how people feel, I think if you want to get the best out of people, you want them to be happy and really feel safe to bring their, their best to work every day. And so maybe you get better decisions made on a decision-by-decision basis, but you not you don't get the best that people have to give because they don't yeah. feel safe. So it's a little bit, I mean, you can make an argument on both sides. I, I, I'm in more the, the, the social cohesion camp um, and the yeah. sort of long-term investing in people. But I don't say, there, when it comes to culture, there's really no wrong answer if the culture is consistent. The worst uh, yeah. type of culture is inconsistent. Like one day you're social cohesion, the next day you're not social cohesion. People, you don't, then, then who do you hire? Do you hire this person or that? Either person will be unhappy. Amazon was able to create a very consistent culture where they were able to hire people that worked really well in that in that system. And so yeah. that's why I think they've, they've done well. But it's not a system or culture that I would choose necessarily. And I- the countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I have it. You talk about culture being consistent though, Mark. I mean, obviously the pandemic has made that a lot harder to maintain a, a consistent culture. And there's ongoing pretty fierce debates right now around the you know, the uh, impact of remote work. And many managers and CEOs say that a more remote workforce hurts culture by making it harder to you know, mentor new employees or people lose those informal connections around the water cooler, that cohesion you speak of. But there's plenty of research that says Remote workers are just as productive, if not more, often more engaged, particularly women, parents, and underrepresented minorities when they're working remotely. Um, what I mean, what's your take? Where do you come down on the debate over remote work, and and again, you know, repercussions it can have on on the consistency of a, of a culture? Yeah, I think I mean I've always believed in, in giving people the flexibility if they you know can't make it in the office for whatever reason on a particular day or day of the week or things, you know, they have family obligations or things like that. I think that's always, you know, the, the, the right answer. When it comes to just generally, you know, this idea of, of work from home, you can, you can have a similar culture. I don't, I don't believe in that. I do think there's magic when everybody's in the same place, feeding off each other's energy, you're building relationships. 
I think I've seen numerous situa situations where people have, have left companies um, simply because they hadn't built a relationship with their leader and, you know, because they've been remote and you, you sort of like uh, forget how important those relationships are because many times people, um, you know, stay in a company and want to give the best they've got because they really respect and believe in their leader. Um, and if, if, if you don't have, you know, quality time with that person on a day-to-day -day basis in person, it's very hard to develop that type of relationship and that type of loyalty that comes with it. So what I'm seeing is people seem to be much more flighty in terms of moving company to company because there isn't yeah. that um, camaraderie and that sort of uh, sense of purpose and, and belonging that happens when, when everyone's together in, in the trenches together. Yeah. Okay. What were your first impressions of a big corporate culture you were part of, Mark? Walmart's. Um, you know, when you arrived there, what did you make of it? I've always kind of wanted to ask you this, and uh, you may have been a bit limited before in being able to answer. But what were your, you know, your real first impressions of of Walmart's corporate culture, and did you think you were able to to change it, even incrementally, in the, in the years you spent there? I mean, I I like to believe that you know it wasn't just me, but the whole Jet team infused sure. in. Uh, did did have a positive impact on the culture. I think, you know, what I learned, and I think some of the team members as well, is how incredible um, uh, the folks at Walmart are at, at operating. You know, like just absolute, like maniacal focus on the details and operating the business, and day in and day out delivering. Um, uh, that that's really hard to do, and it's it's uh, it was it was great to see those types of operators in action because in startup land you don't really typically get those types of people to join you get more entrepreneurial more strategic yeah. visionary kind of thinkers and uh and it was great to see the other side because i think the you know where i come from now is a place of really needing to combine you know both what happened though when there was a clash when there was a clash between the operating focus the operating culture of Walmart and you know your more entrepreneurial bent i mean sometimes you could find middle ground but you were making many you know lots of decisions at the same time a lot of money at stake obviously a huge competitor uh many huge competitors uh, in e-commerce you had to move fast um, you know, were there times when there were culture clashes you felt uh, over there and how did you try to resolve them? Yeah, there, I mean, there were definitely culture clashes. There's, there's no question. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's true diversity of thought, you know, um, and I think, you know, despite the clashes and things, I think there was mutual respect, um, you know, both ways, you know, that, uh, you know, being able to, um, you know, I think educate somewhat the people, the folks at, at Walmart around this notion of, you know, low probability bet with a big outcome. Um, yeah. If you do lots of those, good things are going to happen. Big things are going to happen as opposed to, you know, the operating mindset is let's, let's do everything with a 95 plus percent probability of success and make incremental improvements. And yeah. if you have a really high probability of making an incremental improvement, that seems like a no brainer. Great. But I equally think it's a no-brainer to take a something that has a 20% shot at working that'll be 100x. And that's a little bit of a different mindset because I think the operator mindset is 20% chance, forget it. Wait, 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 wait. But it's 100x. You know, it's, yeah. that's, that's a very different way of thinking. And I think at the end of the day, I learned a ton from the operating mindset. Hopefully, 
you know, the operating mindset, learn, learn something from, yeah. from, from our team. And I do think we, that, that diversity of thinking helped get Walmart you know, to where it is. I, I like to believe that. Can you give us an example of one of those low probability bets you made at Walmart with the potential 100x payout, something that uh, um, you recall from your years there? Yeah, I mean, thing, things that didn't work. <laughs> they weren't 95%. <laughs> but I, mean, I could tell you, like, we, we did Jet Black. Yeah, I was um, gonna. I was gonna mention that. Yeah, which was you know low probability thing has. I think that is still that conversational commerce is the future of of retail. That you know, fast forward twenty years from now, um, I think search engines will be something that we'll we'll sort of laugh about. Um, things yeah. move tend to move slower in retail, so maybe it's a little bit longer than twenty years. But at some point in the future, people will be using voice uh, primarily in text. To have a conversation about what they want to buy and, and the attributes they're looking for, without having to to, to search something and scroll through, you know, thousand a thousand different toasters and read the reviews and things to try to figure out what toaster you want to buy. I, I don't I don't see yeah. that happening. So I think yeah. I think that was one of those uh, uh, low probability bets that didn't, didn't work out. <laughs> I'm st I was still waiting for I, I was very offended. I never got my invitation to join Jet Black. So, you know, um, <laughs> uh, maybe I wasn't the target uh, audience. But I mean, Mark, you obviously had so many ideas as you were growing to going towards the end of your of your tenure at uh, Walmart that we were frantically trying to uh, report on. But I mean, all of a sudden, then you you decide to to leave Walmart, you know, still a strategic advisor, of course, but leaving your full-time role as head of USC Commerce. But you did so in the in the middle of a pandemic, which, of course, nobody could have foreseen. Um, how did that sort of impact your your plans, your exit, your ability to do what you wanted to do? Because obviously you have plenty of, of things cooking right now. But um, how did the pandemic um, and its impact on the economy and just sort of how we go about business, um, you know, change your sort of, uh, you know, your, your exit strategy there from Walmart? Well, the, the business, you know, uh, COVID was a tailwind for, for the business and e-com people, you know, buying more online. So the business was doing well. Um, more importantly, I felt like we had the right organizational structure set up. It took, took a number of years to get to the, to the right structure of merging the brick and mortar, the e-com. So it was one business, one set of merchants. Um, and that was really the most important piece. I felt like the organization was in a really good spot and didn't make sense to have to have two leaders. And John Ferner was there and, and he has a, uh, a really strong you know, background in, in, in tech and product and felt like you know, he would be a great leader to, to bring both together. And I felt like my job was, was sort of done. Um, I'd been yeah. there you know, almost four and a half years and uh, I felt like you know, uh, the, the Walmart was in a good spot. Yeah. So now you, I mean, Mark, you got so many plates spinning at, at once right now. You've you've got Wonder, the the, the food delivery and, and meal kit thing. You've got you're building a five million person city from from scratch. You've got your VC firm. You you co-own the 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 Timberwolves and the WNBA's Lynx. I mean, talk us through. A lot of people who listen to this podcast have a lot of plates spinning. Maybe not as many as you or as as big a plates as you. But you know, how do you prioritize? Um, I, I, you know, how do you manage your day? Yeah, it's like, um, I think the key is I outsource everything that's not basically one of those four things you know, or, or relationships, you know, yeah. <laughs> kind of stuff. But, uh, but, you know, if you sleep, I sleep eight hours a day. So that's, that leaves 16 hours. You know, if you're basically, you know, not doing the, the, uh, the things that during the day that people do that take time, 
um, you, you actually have a lot of time <laughs> to focus yeah. on the things that, that you really want to focus on. And so I've made it a point to outsource anything and everything possible. And I've got a great team that helps me do that um, to free me up. So let's that. talk about, the, I mean, the city you're building. I mean, we did a big cover story of it uh, uh, not long ago. I mean, when you think about building a city versus building a, a company, Obviously, a bigger challenge, a different challenge. But do you approach do you approach some things in the same way, or, or what's different? Yeah, I mean, so obviously, never built a city before, so you know, I can't say this is the right strategy. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but um, you know, I think most of the cities that you kind of see start off really as they're, they're real estate projects and they're for profit motives. And uh, I think we wanted to approach it from a little different angle. And it's, it's really, a, a, you know, the name of the city is Tolosa, and we started a, a community foundation, the Tolosa Community Foundation, and we're coming at it from a different angle. It's not about, about the real estate project. It's about starting with people at the center and trying to, um, trying out a new model for society, basically, that we think has a shot to be better than the one we have. Um, and so our, our mission is, is to create a more equitable and sustainable future. Like, that's sort of the starting point. So it's very similar to a startup. You start with a mission. You have your vision, you have your set of values, um, and then you build the culture and figure out who you are, what you stand for, and what you want to be, and then everything else falls in place. So it's, it's you know, to my knowledge, there aren't you know, a, there's a city out there that really started with mission, vision, values, and culture first. Now you said though, Mark, that you you want to build sort of this new kind of institution because people have lost faith in government, and there's no doubt about that. Um, but according to the most recent trust barometer from from Edelman, I mean, we don't people don't really trust businesses, business leaders that much either anymore. I mean, there's this whole um, pandemic of mistrust. So, you know, in your opinion, how can American businesses regain some of that trust? You're a businessman. I mean, what's your how do you do it? What do, what do you think needs to happen here? It's one of the reasons why we set this up as a as a as a charity and not not for profit foundation is I think it's really important that, you know, I personally have no financial stake whatsoever in the success of the city. That it is purely acting in the best interest of, of, of the, the citizens and the people that live there. Um, I think if there, if there were uh, a financial motive tied to it or some benefit, I think that's where the distrust comes. You know, I think with corporations, they are, you know, in the business of, of making profit for their shareholders. And so, I think there's an inherent distrust in that, that, you know, are, are they doing it for profit or are they doing it for social good? And that's a fine line to walk. Here, there's no line to walk. We're, it's all 100%, you know, social good project. And uh, I think hopefully that will garner, garner more trust. Um, also, the way we're approaching it, you know, I think there's a divide, like you said, in this country uh, about what to do. We know that there's there's an issue and that, that the, you know, uh, the, the country is divided and, how do you how do you bring both sides together? And I think we've got a shot here. Um, I think capitalism, um, you know, uh, I believe in capitalism is, is a great economic model, but it comes with its flaws. And you know, one of the, one of the primary flaws that we were sort of one, one of the flaws we, we sort of closed that that gap was uh, antitrust um, competition. You know, in in, in the past, um, you know, you were able to have a monopoly. And basically, that was bad for customers, and that was bad for employees. And the government said, "Wait, we, we need to have some antitrust. We can't have monopolies. We we need to have com competition for capitalism to work well." So 
So we sort of fixed that, that, that gap, and that made a big difference. I, I still think there's another, another problem, and that's the gap that we're trying to close, which is you know, land ownership um, and, and the fact that you know, land ownership is, is essentially um, you know, sort of that silent uh, monopoly. There's a finite amount of land, and you can own a piece of land and, and literally do nothing. Um, and and as, as people move into the community and give land value, it appreciates. And my thinking was, what if we took land that was worthless in the desert, absolutely worthless, and we had the foundation buy this land? If we can get 5 million people to move there um, and create a, a, a viable you know, city, that that land would be worth close to a trillion dollars um, in value. And, and that value would accrue to the foundation, and the foundation's mission would be to take that, create an endowment, earn $50 billion a year, and give it back to the citizens in the form of advanced social services, whether it be healthcare, education, uh, affordable housing, jobs training. And that's really the best of both worlds, because you, you, without having to increase taxes, you're able to have this incredible uh, you know, social system and, and sort of foundation for people to sort of uh, and create this, this, this more equitable base. Um, and then, of course, once the land rapidly appreciates to be worth a trillion, then sure, then the foundation could sell the land off. It's not meant to be the land can't be owned by anyone. But the idea is that 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 initial step change in appreciation from being worthless to being a city is where all this this value uh, capture uh, of that appreciation comes back to the foundation and the people, as opposed to you know um, you know five million people moving to to a place that's owned by people and the land's worthless and and the land goes up in value and is worth a trillion dollars and those people that own the land didn't necessarily have to do anything to give land its value and so I just just a slight tweak there I'm not suggesting people shouldn't own land or the government should own land or anything like that. This is not meant, meant to be anything in the way of even approaching socialism. It's capitalism at its best. It is, it is a foundation buying the land, helping 5 million people move there because the foundation will give the money and the appreciation that the 5 million people bring back to them. That's it. You mentioned, Mark, this happening in, in the desert. Have you settled? Uh, is it going to be Nevada in terms of where this will end up? We haven't settled up? on it yet, but it does seem to be uh, you know, one of the one of the high priority places, just because of the the land value and also the laws um, to be able to yeah. to move fast and and to to build in a way that. Um, Are there still regulatory or legal hurdles there? I mean, Nevada seemed the most promising, but there were still some hurdles last time. Oh yeah! Time. Oh, there's so many hurdles. <laughs> yeah, name <laughs> name one. Give give me one you're working on now. No, I mean water, for example, in the desert is is definitely yes. you know there's there's uh, that's a that's a big issue. And so, you know, one of the things we're doing there, and this again will benefit hopefully uh, other other cities and, and countries and things, but figuring out how we could, um, without limiting people's use of water, actually uh, use ninety percent less water per person. Um, by the way, we we capture it and recycle it and. A lot of that technology, I think, is is uh, is something that we'll we'll want to we'll want to test and use and learn from in, in other cities. So there have been other attempts at this. What have you learned from those prior attempts that may have? Yeah, yeah what, have... what we've learned is a couple things. One, you know, anytime you want to put the city up as an edge city against bumping up against another city where a population center exists, there's there's going to be opposition. 
you know, as opposed to going in the desert where it's a clean slate and there's, you know, there's, there's obviously still issues and environmental issues and things like that. But, but if there's no people around, it, I think it, it makes it easier. So that's, that's one big hurdle. The second is um, not leading with technology. I think a lot of these cities lead with technology and it, it, it sounds great, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, like any, any great city is great because it has soul. Um, and because it stands for something, it has a culture, it has, you know, and so how do we you know, start again with people at the center with a set of values and a culture and give the city soul and use technology in the background to make things more efficient, but not lead with it. And certainly not, um, cause that technology is, is, is sort of cold, you know, uh, if you just yeah. sort of like lead with it, I think on, uh, on its own. But, uh, but obviously technology can make things more efficient and certainly when it comes to public transportation and things like that, it could be, you know, a lot more efficient, but you don't, I don't, I don't think you want it to be, um, high tech because you lose yeah. the, the feel and the soul. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Mark, I asked you earlier about sort of how you plan your day and such and, and the 16 hours that you have. Do you leave time in the day just sort of free to think about new stuff, new ideas, or is there just not enough time for that? I, I always hate admitting this because, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really read. Um, and I think... I find, you know, I've tried to read and I'm, I'm, I think it's interesting, but the amount of time it takes to read a book, um, the amount of thinking that could, could happen during that same time, I always choose the thinking. And so maybe at, at a time when, when, when others would be reading a book or a newspaper or, or, or magazine or, or online, I'm, I'm thinking. So I, I do spend quite a bit of time thinking. Um, to try and stitch everything together. And I'm not against reading. Um, and I, I prefer to talk to people and meet people and sort of, you know, um, you know learn, learn from just asking questions and then yeah. stitching things together. Is, is there an idea you've had recently, Mark, that you've maybe just sort of tucked away, save for later? I mean, I've done a lot of things since I, since I left Walmart. Yeah. And everything from conversational commerce, we talked about that, this wizard uh, startup. Yeah, I, I probably don't have time <laughs> to get into all the different things, but I've, done, I've yeah. done most of them. I do think there's still a really big opportunity in, in healthcare. That's, um, that's this, this, this idea of preventative medicine and, and people taking control of their health. Um, and, and there's a lot of um, you know, ways for people now in their own home to get more data information and metrics about their health. Um, on a regular basis, and and I think there'll be a future where that's all kept and uploaded in, in you know into in, into one central location, and machine learning, and people are able to to know um, you know in, in many cases things that maybe their doctors don't even know in terms of what's happening you know right. when when you piece everything together 
your, your blood work yeah. and your and your pulse and your oxygen levels and your breathing at night and all these different different pieces and uh, to be able to get ahead of and prevent um, disease. So, Mark, I got to ask you about the metaverse. I mean, it's all we hear about these days. Yeah. Uh, everyone has an opinion on it. You know, what what's yours? What is the metaverse in your in your eyes? What is it for? Um, and how do you, you know, what, where are the biggest opportunities is probably the better question. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to relate, you know, when it's a, you know, it's a generational thing. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like if, if there's a lot of people I know that just, they say, oh, metaverse and they just sort of push it away at, I don't, I don't know. That sounds, that sounds you know, outrageous. You know, this idea yeah, like, that, like crypto or something. Yeah. Just like crypto or you just get it away, you know? And, and I think those are the types of things you have to be open to and, and, and embrace because, um, whether you like it or not, it's coming. And, uh, I think the, the, the idea of, you know, augmented reality is going to really accelerate this, this, this idea of the metaverse, because this idea of, or, or, or even NFTs, digital goods, right? You know, that's, digital goods are really hot now. People are, are buying and paying outrageous sums of money for, you know, digital baseball cards, digital videos, digital art. Um, and people don't understand it. But what's going to happen is there's going to be a point in the future where people are wearing, you know, what looks like ordinary uh, glasses that have embedded augmented reality in it that allows you to see digital objects overlaid in the real world. And so yes. you could be walking down the street and with these glasses on and see somebody wearing a digital handbag or a digital pair of, of, of sneakers. And that gives those items value because of the prestige that's associated with it, right? I mean, I mean when it comes to fashion and things like that or art, it's all, it's all about you know, scarcity and, 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 and prestige and things. Like, you know, why, why is it, you know, the exact same handbag is as Gucci without the Gucci label on it worth, you know, a fraction of the price that people that the brands matter. And I think the same thing's going to happen with these digital goods where people will, would be wearing these glasses and you can go into an office building and see a beautiful piece of digital art on the wall. How, how far away? Cool. Yeah. How far away, Mark, do you think we are from this augmented reality? I mean, I think there's already, you know, we have the capability of doing it now, but it takes a while for it to be mainstream. And I think the the technology outpaces, you know, probably um, you know people's ability to adopt it. I think the adoption curve is, is going to be very slow, and then it'll start to accelerate. And and probably, I would say, you know, maybe ten years from now, if I had, you know, ten years from now, it'll start to feel like people will really get it. Like people will yeah. be wearing glasses. Not everyone, but enough people that people will, will recognize that, yeah, this is, this is really the future. Um, yeah. In 10 years, Mark, besides conversational commerce, which you've talked a lot about at Walmart and now currently, um, how else do you think retail and, and e-commerce will be different 10 years from now um, versus today? Well, so it's conversational commerce for one. And I think the other is sort of this social commerce, this idea of this sort of creator economy where, where anyone could be a retailer. You know, so if you've got a if you've got a um, TikTok or Instagram or, or whatever social media platform you're on, you could uh, like certain brands and very easily create a, a video of these brands that people could shop from, and you make revenue. You know, this idea of people building their own marketplaces using 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 tools 
um, to do it. Um, I, I think that, so it's, it becomes much more fragmented, the retail market uh, in, in the future. And who do you think, I mean, do you think companies like Walmart's um, Target will be in the lead there? Or do you think we'll, you know, we'll see a new era of, of companies we've never even maybe thought much about that uh, may be more inclined or attuned to social commerce versus traditional brick and mortar and, and last mile stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think the companies already engaged in social media now, I think, have an advantage, um, you know, just because they've got the platform and they've got the, the people on there. I think I just in, in invested in a stake in a company called Now With, which is building this platform and these tools. And I think there are other companies as well doing it. I think um, you know, th those companies will be the accelerant. But, but ultimately, um, I think there's, there, there's, there's a high probability that the companies are already in social media um, would, would be in, yeah. in the best position to, to sort That's of leverage right. that technology. Mark, a few minutes ago, you said uh, you'd rather be out meeting people than, let's say, you know, or reading a, a, a management uh, book. Um, when you go out and meet people, I'm, I'm sure they ask for your advice, but you, I imagine you often ask people for their advice. So I, I ask this of everyone I interview, Mark, what's the best piece of advice you ever received? Who gave it to you and, and uh, you know, how have you acted on it? It's funny. It wasn't. It wasn't so direct, I guess, in terms of like the advice as you, you you typically would would hear it. But my my grandfather, I called him Big Pop. Um, he was had a big influence on on my life uh, growing up. Um, he was the antithesis of, of sort of the, the family that I I you know grown up with. My parents fighting and things. He was very um, uh, you know uh, kind and and empathetic and. Um, was so incredibly grateful for his life. He he grew up, um, you know, came from Italy and 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 worked uh, as a, as a as a tailor for a while, and then and then worked for the city, you know, laying railroad tracks for his entire life, and said he had the best job in the world. It was like working twelve to one in an hour for lunch, um, and uh, he used to say you know, how he was the richest guy in the world, and he would count all his daughters and grandchildren as a million bucks. You know, a million here, two million, three million. Who's got it better than me? And so it wasn't necessarily, you know, advice in the traditional sense, but that really stuck with me, you know. Um, and what was it that that made him, you know, so grateful and so giving and so appreciative of his life, even though, you know, by 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 anyone's you know s standard definition of success, he wouldn't have been very successful at all. Um, exactly. And so that, that advice, that, you know, indirect advice there is, is something that's really stuck with me and really, really drives me. And I think about it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. My, my dad tells me about how my, my, his dad, my grandfather, yeah, was a milkman in Brooklyn and, you know, <laughs> he would, but he would come home with a smile on his face. Um, you know, as uh, so Mark, I mean, I got to ask Mark, I'm a big New York Mets fan. You tried to buy my favorite team. Um, Steve Cohen got them instead. What What do you think about the job he's doing so far? I got to ask. Is it, I think I would I would do it a little differently. Maybe that's the the, the okay. way the, the way to say it. I mean, and and I think yeah. Alex and I are doing it with with the Timberwolves now. It's you know before you start making moves, you know, and this is something I just learned and and kind of got whacked on the head many times for making making moves first, and then doing the 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 foundational work, and so. I think it's always best to do the foundational work first, which is like before you hire, fire, do anything, figure out what exactly is the mission of this organization. Uh, what do we stand for? What is our set of values? 
What is the culture that we want to build? What are the attributes of the people that we want in the organization? Because you need to kind of have that roadmap so then you can assess the people you have, whether they're a good fit, and then new people, whether they're a fit, so that you can build the right culture. And then, and then also, what is the vision? Like, what do you, where do you want to be in 10 or 20 years? What's the strategy to get there? What are the success look like? What are the metrics? Like, get that foundational work in place, communicate it to the organization so that every move you make makes sense to the outside world, to the inside world, to everyone. Um, yeah. And, you know, from what I can see, again, I haven't been close to it. It seems like a lot of moves have been made very quickly. Now, they, they may have done the foundational work. Um, but my, my, you know, I, I think it, it usually takes a lot longer to do that work. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a 12, it 12, we don't, have, uh, we don't have much patience, uh, as Met fans, we don't have much patience. No, and so, right. so maybe, maybe that's what, you know, inspired, inspired him to take action is the, is the, the, the sense of urgency yeah. that it's been a long time and the fans are putting a lot of pressure, but, um, we don't have that same pressure necessarily in, in, in Minnesota, but, uh, but I do think, um, you know that that it's doing that heavy, heavy, you know, hard work and, and heavy lifting up front will pay huge yeah. dividends in the future. Um, yeah. So you mentioned um, Alex. Um, we might uh, know him. Uh, our listeners probably know him better as A Rod. Um, just to make sure we all know what we're talking about here. And what what have you learned from from Alex? And what do you think he's learned from you as you guys are now sort of you know famous uh, partners on several things. Yeah, we're, I mean, I've really enjoyed getting to know Alex, and, and uh, we share a common, common set of values. You know, we, we grew up in a, in a similar way, um, have a similar set of values, but we have a very uh, different, we approach problems from a you know, uh, different way of thinking. Um, his experience, you know, as one of, one of the best uh, players of all time, um, you know, has is, is been incredibly valuable um, to me and to the team in terms of... Um, you know, being able to really relate to the players and how they're feeling and thinking and in ways that are super insightful, that there's no way you would know that unless you've been in a clubhouse and, and been there and how management, GM, the owners are perceived, things that, that you can do that, that players appreciate and things that, that they wouldn't. And it's that deep insight that's been been really helpful. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of bringing that all the experience I have in the startup land to to, to put into place this foundation of vision, capital, people, VCP, as I call it, um, and, and doing, doing that, that heavy lifting to get, get the foundation strong. And I think the combination of, of Alex and I you know, make, make a good team. Yeah. Can I ask quickly about the market? I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, tanking at the, at the moment this week. Is, 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 is Jeremy Grantham right? Has the stock market, uh, you know, have we peaked? Uh, where, and where, where do you place your bets, Mark, as an investor, um, in, in, if we are in a dip, um, you know, I, I, before my life as an entrepreneur, I was in financial risk management and, I uh, started in investing in stocks in seventh grade. So like my, my, um, as much as I'm an entrepreneur, I love, I love the stock market and, and, you know, follow it pretty closely. And, uh, I, I've been through so many crashes, you know, you know, in my, in my, in my life, like big ones, you know, like everything from 87, you know, to, to 2000, 2008, and yeah. people that, you know, got into the market, I guess, after 2008, it's been an, it's been an incredible run, um, the last 14 years. And, uh, and I'm, I guess I, I just have that, um, I've been through, been through a number of them where 
it always seems to happen when things look like they can't, they can't, like nothing's going to stop it. Something stops it. And by all historic accounts, the, the stock market is, is, is top heavy and overvalued, especially in certain sectors. And so I've been a little bit, you know, um, gun shy in, in, in getting, yeah. getting into the market. Um, it's not to say it's going to crash, but I do think there are, uh, some warning signs, you know, the, the, the things we're seeing with, with inflation, um, and, and everything we've done with monetary policy throughout COVID. I think the, the bubble that we're seeing in, in, in physical assets in crypto, things like that, that don't necessarily have the, the same level of intrinsic value, expose the market and, and give us, give, give more risk there, especially, especially how wide and far reaching, um, some of those, um, uh, investments in, in things like crypto go. It's not just a small group anymore. It's, it's very mass. That concerns me. And so I am not a, a, I'm not necessarily going to jump in and short the market, but I'm also not, yeah. not feeling comfortable being long either. Yeah. What about your investments at, at VCP? I mean, if the, if the appetite for IPOs is, is lessened, uh, how does that impact and influence, you know, the decisions you're going to make as head of a, a fund there? Yeah. I mean, market goes in cycles. So we're starting from the ground, you know, and getting in at very modest valuations, you know, less than 20 million valuation. And it'll take some number of years before uh, these companies are worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And so, you know, in some ways, it may be the best time to be getting into startups now because, you know, in five years from now, we could be, you know, in, 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 at a bottom or in the upswing. You know, I think the, the worst place to be right now would be sort of, you know, pre-IPO. Uh, in my mind, you know, just because of how how unstable the market is at this moment. So no, I feel great. I think I think I think getting in startups and starting from scratch today is a, is is a sort of perfect place to be. Okay, I got to ask Mike one question about food, if I if I can. I mean, obviously, uh, one of your businesses is very much centered around uh, you know high end food, bringing restaurant quality food um, uh, via via trucks into people's uh, homes and delivery. Um, give me a name. What's your favorite Italian restaurant in the city or in Jersey? I would I mean, say uh, I would say um, Angelica's in Seabright, New Jersey. Okay, why that? The, the food, the Italian food, is just incredible. Anybody who who's hearing this that's been there knows what I'm talking about. The food is okay. is out of this world, and um, we, we fortunately just just partnered with them um, on uh, okay. on Wonder. So. That's exciting to be able to bring that that quality Italian food to to. Uh, Maybe we can break bread there one day, or one of the good spots up here in uh, in Harrison as well. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for coming to speak to us on, on Out of Office. Thanks, I really Matt. enjoyed it. Yeah, same here. I really enjoyed this chat too, and I hope you did. That was Mark Lore in conversation with my colleague Matthew Boyle. Remember, you can check out more episodes of Out of Office on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Bloomberg Terminal, and Bloomberg.com. This episode was produced by Yang Yang. I'm Malika Kapoor. As always, thank you for listening. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more 
at cutter economic forum.com